Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week, the Bookshelf Cinema is screening Le Weekend, Finding Vivian Meyer, Philomena, Gloria, and more. Author Valerie Mason-John is in the bookstore on Friday, April 11th at 4 p.m. to discuss her book, Eight-Step Recovery, which employs Buddhist teachings to overcoming addiction. At the E-Bar this week, Kazoo Fest takes over, with Cousins, The Furies, and The Medicine Hat playing on Thursday night. And then the next night, Friday, you can see Diana, Petra Glint, Manatee, and Advertise. Also of note, on April 18th, you can catch Ladyhawk, Marine Dreams, and Dutch Toko, uh, who are all playing a show together at the U-Bar. That'll be a great show. The Bookshelf is an independently owned culture hub located at 41 Quebec Street in Guelph. Visit bookshelf.ca for more info. Nice to be back with you in the land of the living. I'm finally feeling better. I had this chest cold, uh, of which vestiges remain. I'm still, there's something going on, but I feel better. It's nice to be back. And I have a nice show for you today. Carl Wilson and Shawn Michaels are on the program, two very, very well-respected music writers, uh, both of whom I have a fairly long history with. Carl and I, I'd say, are are mostly acquaintances. Carl comes to Guelph every once in a while for the Guelph Jazz Festival. I see him in Toronto from time to time. I've interviewed him a few times. We talk. No, everything's fine. Now I make it sound like there's a problem with Carl and I. Carl and I are good. The only comparison I was making is that Sean and I, I think Sean and I are, are actually pals. Sean and I have been to Dawson City and Sackville together and Montreal and Toronto. Maybe I've seen him in Toronto. I don't know. Anyway, Sean and I... I, yeah, I like both these men very much, and they do great work. Um, I look up to them, if I might say, as someone who aspires to write about music. Well, I do it. I shouldn't say aspire. I don't do it as well as them, but I do it. Anyway, they're great, and they each have books out. Uh, Carl's book is a republished version of a 2007 groundbreaking book, frankly. It's called Let's Talk About Love, which is the name of a very, very popular Celine Dion album. Uh, which features the uh, hit single My Heart Will Go On, love theme uh, from Titanic. And basically, Carl uses this record and Celine Dion as a case study about taste. 
You know, how can someone so beloved also be such a pariah? What, what is the deal with the extremity there in terms of how she's valued as a cultural figure? And it's very, very fascinating. And uh, I, I'm, I was a big fan of it. The new book, the new version of the book, rather, it contains the original book with, you know, minor corrections and alterations. But the new book, uh, the subtitle is uh, Why Other People Have Such Bad Taste. So a little more literal, I suppose, on some level. And it features some uh, amazing essays by people like uh, Sheila Hetty and Nick Hornby and uh, Owen Pallett, Chris Novoselic, uh, James Franco, among others. Uh, James Franco, the actor, professed his love for this book. Anyway, it's a great book, and I've spoken to uh, Carl about it before. I'm happy to speak to him uh, about it again. Sean Michaels uh, is a, a new novelist. His first novel has just been published. It's called uh, Us Conductors. I just finished it um, maybe hours before I, I spoke with Carl and Sean uh, this week. And uh, it's wonderful. Very compelling. Gets dark. I was really... It got dark so quickly, seemingly. Anyway, wonderful book. So, I wanted to talk to both of them. They, Sean was in Toronto uh, from his home base in Montreal. So I had, we were all going to meet at Carl Wilson's apartment, and I couldn't make it, so it's, it's us having a three-way conversation using the internet, and it sounds fine. You'll hear it. It's good. I'm, I'm happy with the chat. Now, I do want to make another point. Uh, last night, given the uh, uh, discussion that you're about to hear, oh, sorry, uh, Sean's book centers around uh, the main character uh, invented the theremin, which is, if you don't know, it's that magic instrumental box that uh, operates people you, you've probably seen it people use their hands to adjust the volume and the tone they can create music using their hands and wave sound waves and anyway I'm not doing it justice but anyway last night given who's on the show I googled My Heart Will Go On by Celine Dion the theme from Titanic and Theremin and I found someone who plays My Heart Will Go On the love theme from Titanic on the theremin uh, they go by the name on... Uh, this is on YouTube. They go by the name... I guess it's pronounced Yeep Seastar. I, I'm, I'm likely mispronouncing it. But basically, uh, she posted two videos of herself playing the theremin, playing this song. The first one was just like 18 days after she started playing theremin. She figured out a rudimentary version of My Heart Will Go On. And then she posted another video of her doing the same thing three and a half years later. And it's... It's pretty astounding, and it looks amazing. I recommend you find this on YouTube. I'll post a link on the Facebook page so you can watch it. But anyway, that's a lot of explanation about what's going on in the show. I hope you enjoy the program. Here it is, Carl Wilson, Shawn Michaels. Enjoy. Spring is almost here, which means it's time for another Kazoo Fest. The 7th Annual Festival will transform downtown Guelph into a hotbed of music and art for five action-packed days. From April 9th to 13th, the festival will showcase over 30 musical performances, visual art, multimedia art installations, the Kazoo Print Expo, film screenings, and more. Headlining artists this year include Destroyer, Hooded Fang, Cousins, Bry Webb, Vaj Halen, Nihilus Spasm Band, 
solids, biblical, and much more. For more information about the 2014 Kazoo Fest, visit kazookazoo.ca or follow them on Twitter at Kazoo Guelph. and Shawn Michaels are two of Canada's most esteemed music writers. Based in Toronto, Carl Wilson is the music critic at Slate and has contributed to The Globe and Mail, The New York Times, and many other publications. His 2007 book, Let's Talk About Love, has just been published in a new and expanded edition and continues the provocative conversation Wilson initiated about cultural consumption, taste, and why some things are considered cool and some things aren't. Things like Celine Dion albums, for instance. Shawn Michaels lives in Montreal, is an award-winning writer and founder of the music blog Said the Gramophone, and is written for The Guardian and McSweeney's, among others. Random House has just published his first novel. It's called Us Conductors, and it's a touching, compelling, distorted memoir of Leon Terman, the brilliant scientist but rather heartbroken human who is best known for inventing the mysterious musical instrument known as the theremin. On Tuesday, April 8th, Wilson and Michaels engaged in a tandem book launch at the Monarch Tavern in Toronto, featuring many special guests. Here now to discuss this further are Carl Wilson and Sean Michaels. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Hi. Hi, Reese. I'm great. How are you? Very well. It's nice to speak with you. Now, first and foremost, I've done this already off the record, but I'd like to state that I apologize that I could not be with you in Toronto today. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I apologize we can't be with you in Guelph. Yeah. I, really, it's a two-way street, apologies. And I feel like you didn't make much of an effort to come see me. <laughs> but uh, it's my party, so I, I, I'm glad we're all here. Now, a tandem book launch, these things happen from time to time, but um, I'm curious why this idea made sense for both of you. Um, how do you know one another and what do you see as parallels between your, your works? Um, well, Sean and I have known each other for about a decade, basically because of the Internet, um, because we were both doing music blogs at the time that music blogging was kind of a thing. And so we, we started collaborating in various ways during that period and, and kind of had an ongoing conversation. So in a lot of ways, doing this, um, doing this launch is kind of a culmination of that, it's, It was both, both of us having something coming out at the same time and both kind of music books that took off on a tangent from being sort of straight ahead music cr- criticism. It seemed like a fun idea to do that together. Mm-hmm. There's also something fun about any book launch is in some ways a, a social action. You're kind of uh, celebrating, I don't know, a symbolic ship launching and leaving the bay. Uh, among your friends or acquaintances or and then strangers uh, and so to me there's a really important gesture of friendship that will be happening as well that I'm happy very happy about well it's, it's curious uh, or interesting rather that you you mentioned the internet and your connection that way because I find that both books are really about the intangible connections we make via music and I'm curious if you can talk about what 
you suppose it is about music that seems to engage and flame and galvanize us the way it does? <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. Hey, uh, mm. We're live here, by the way, guys. Yeah, oh, great. <laughs> no, we're not. We're not live. I, it's a. It's a. It's a fairly heavy question, but do you see kind of what I mean here? Uh, the, the, this intangible idea of taste. You know what it means. It's sort of indefinable, yet. You know, Carl's striving to to do so uh, in some way. At least get to the bottom of it, Sean. When you talk about the theremin, it's a. As I mentioned in my introduction, it's a. It's a rather unusual instrument. You're conducting things. But it's sort of, you know, it's in the air, rather, in, in some ways. It's a tangible box, but you're creating things out of nothing, so to speak. So I, I guess my, my, my point is that these, both of these things, and, and when you mentioned that you struck up a friendship even over the Internet, you know, <laughs> this kind of invisible uh, connection that you've struck, I don't know. That was my angle with that question. It was, it was reasonably clear, Vish. It, it's, it's, we're, we're also navigating the... The, the dynamics of doing a three-way yeah. interview yes. this way, of course, um, of course, and then and then trying to find the words, um, and yeah, I mean, I think that one of the fascinating things about music and that you that is just observable socially is that it seems to sort of call people out in some way, like it, it creates communities of listeners, it gives people identifications and identities, it you know. I think because of that intangible quality, because it's kind of the most abstract of arts, it it really asks questions about what sort of personhood is in some ways, because because there's that sense of it's it's almost a completely mental experience to listen to music. It doesn't it's not an external one at all. And so then I think because and then because of social things that that you know, we can only sort of say anthropologically have always seemed to be true that music is used as a way to knit people together and as a way to, you know, for people to act in, in concert in some way, you know, and even like marching music and all of the kinds of, and dancing, right. all of these things kind of are inherently social in some ways. And so it really lends itself to those kinds of metaphors and to asking those kinds of questions. There is something really bizarre, uh, though I like to imagine, you know, you go to a, someone takes a video camera into a concert hall, a symphony concert hall, and then just points it into the crowd. Uh, and you've got this invisible, intangible force sound <laughs> that is um, affecting everyone there. And it's both exerting like a, an emotional pressure on the people there and sort of making them feel something, but it's also binding them together into a collective experience. And it's like this invisible, like, it's like this weird intangible, intangible field that is uh, yeah. doing all that. Yeah, it's interesting if you sort of like imagine that videotape and the sort of like, you know, from Mars kind of metaphor. Mm -hmm. If someone could just see that video feed and not hear what's going on, like it would seem like something completely mm -hmm. insane was going on because it's everybody just sitting there being absorbed into this kind of musical invisible field. And yeah, the theremin is amazing. As a as a representation, yeah, of it's that a kind of metaphor, thing. yeah, in a way, mm -hmm. yeah, and that, that's what I was thinking. That's that's yeah. what I was thinking, and I think that that it's curious that you was it was the theremin something you were interested in before uh, you kind of came up with this idea of using uh, using it as a like as a device for a book. It's it yeah. seems rather odd. Where did the idea come from to actually explore the theremin? I think it was an amalgamation of things rather than 
uh, like it wasn't like, oh, I have an idea. Let me take one step forward toward that idea and so on and so forth. I was just recently trying to figure out the timetable. Um, I wouldn't say I've always loved the theremin, but I had a very powerful theremin listening experience about five or ten years ago in the car at night, uh, listening to the radio and thinking I was listening to a beautiful singer, a soprano, sort of turning on the radio mid-aria, hmm. thinking I was doing something extraordinary. And then at the end, someone saying that was Peter Pringle performing, I don't know, something on the on the theremin. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was so, had been so fooled and it really reoriented the way that I think about, thought about the theremin from this sort of thinking of it primarily as a noise making machine that can be sort of strangled into having a more uh, noble kind of existence to seeing it as this like beautiful, possibly beautiful instrument that is notorious for its kind of cheesier more ham-fisted ways of it being played. So there was that. And then gradually hearing about a little bit of this true story of uh, Lev Terman and Clara Rockmore and their extraordinary and kind of bewildering uh, story, historical story. Um, and I've always been really attracted to stories that don't sound like they could possibly be true, <laughs> but are. Uh, and then to try to manipulate and kind of play in the liminal zone between the actual unbelievable true story and my lies about that true story. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting to me that that you bring up the lies. It, it's interesting to me that you were, were interested in trying to get to the bottom of something because both of you are, are doing this in your work. And I, I'm wondering if you can kind of address why both of you might be drawn to these kinds of things because they're kind of unusual. You're You're kind of prying into something that a lot of people just view superficially um they absorb music uh, however they might um some of us try to delve deeper into it uh but you two in particular uh over the last decade uh, for sure uh, have become prominent uh explorers of music and i'm curious if you can talk a little bit about what has driven you in that direction well it's interesting you know what sean was just saying about having sort of taken the theremin for granted up until a certain point and then reorienting the view and I think that like in both of these cases you know and it's kind of maybe something inherent to narrative that it's it that these are good devices to use um you know in both cases they're kind of things that in some way have been banalized you know whether it's kind of a middle of the road pop singer or an instrument that's kind of associated with cheesy science fiction both of these things kind of don't seem like they have particular depths at first glance. Mm -hmm. And so the opportunity to sort of peel back layers of that kind of thing, it's in some ways, it's like, it's a really good figure for investigating anything deeply when you can kind of like put, shines a different kind of light on something. And, you know, that whole effect, you know, theatrical effect of kind of making the familiar unfamiliar again is, is kind of a lot of what writing and literature can do. And I think that, you know, both of these books try to do that um, by creating a different narrative around the around the object at the center than the narrative that people think they know. Yeah. And in both cases, both seem to be deductive mysteries in their own in their own way. And they're both love stories. Uh, and, I, and I think that's really fascinating, too. They're both really incited by passion and, uh, and investigation. Do you 
Do you th- was that purposeful? I mean, obviously that makes sense for your book launch, <laughs> but was that, was that purposeful? Is that where you come from, this place of love and sort of scientific reasoning almost? I think both of us, I think there's a commonality in that it's kind of what we're seeing are some of the results, the consequences of both of us. I don't want to speak to Carl, but I think that I really resonate very much with some of his music writing and a book like Let's Talk About Love in that it seems to the kind of the premise with which he comes to this writing about music and the way that I've always tried to write about music, which has then affected this uh, writing, this story that involves music, is it's these kind of like huge big questions of, you know, loneliness and want and longing and, you know, where do we find joy and where do we find solace and those kind of questions, you know, I think in my own life and maybe in Carl's life, uh, music has been really one of those answers to those questions. But instead of just getting really interested in nerding out just about like, oh, how does music work and how does it, uh, what are some interesting things about it? I really am sort of fascinated by that place where music did that to me. The, mm. Those moments where music acts on me in that way. And I think Carl is very good at, at teasing those moments where music is acting on those feelings of loneliness and joy and trying to figure out what's going on, how much does it have to do with who I am, my membership in certain social groups or whatever it might be. And so I think both of us kind of, there's a certain love of where the the human spirit intersects with art uh, that is exciting. And I think it's that common interest that has made us see interesting uh, be fascinated by some of each other, at least my in Carl's myself in Carl's work. No, yeah, and definitely the same on my side. You know, the thing that I really appreciate about Sean's writing from the beginning is that it it zeroes in on the those human moments. And and the thing that's interesting about talking about music is that it's an emotional and deeply personal thing that people can recognize in common with each other. And so it's an opportunity, you know, it's harder to talk about those things about politics or to talk about those things about a lot of human endeavor. And maybe, you know, uh, people mediate these things through sports a lot. And then another sort of tribe of people mediates these things through music. And I think that taking an approach to the writing where that's the site that you're in is like, what are we, what do we all feel and what, what comes up in us when we're, when we're encountering this, it's a chance to kind of expose vulnerabilities to each other in a way that's very hard to do most of the time. And I think that like one thing that one of the reasons that I've always felt an affinity for Sean's work is that, you know, there's a lot of different kinds of music writing and a lot of different kinds of critics. And some people really are interested in it for music culture. You know, it's like, it's a, it's a more fandom based kind of um, ranking the greats and following the, the inner movements of bands and all of these kinds of things. And that's one way to the music journalism has been done. But I think Sean and I both come at it as writers first Mm -hmm. and that music is, is just a, an opportunity to do writing around and to do the basic kind of work that we've always wanted to do around it. And so that's, you know, so even though music um, and being music fans has been important to give us that material, Mm-hmm. It's not really the reason that we're in the game, you know, and I think that that's we both try to make that evident on the surface and try to engage readers the way that you would read any kind of book. 
and that these just happen to be centered around music in some way. Yeah. Carl, Carl, you said something at the near the top of our conversation, and you kind of touched upon it again just now about how uh, you two you used to write, or rather, you write for music blogs when that was a thing, <laughs> and it kind of speaks to the changing landscape of mu- music writing and, and culture. Um, and you just alluded to uh, certain methods that people employ in writing about music, um, lists and whatnot. How would you describe the current state of music writing, um, particularly when it comes to, uh, I think, a, a small revolution that blogs started? But, you know, here in Canada, we look around and a couple of very prominent blogs have folded up um, yeah. just because they're like, I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at the stats. I'm not sure I can, this isn't sustainable uh, for me anymore. Uh, from your perspectives, um, as two, two people who have made uh, significant contributions to music blog culture, as it were. How would you describe the current state of affairs? It's a uh, post-apocalyptic wasteland. I think it's terrible. I think uh, I mean it's not terrible in that I'm angry at anyone, and it's just a tragedy. I really, I honestly thought ten or fifteen years ago that the music blog, or even more specifically the MP3 blog, the blog that had sort of blurts of personal writing about music accompanied by that music itself that visitors could listen to there and then. I thought it was going to transform the way that we uh, discovered music and that suddenly we'd be able to be introduced to a piece of music through someone who loved it, Yeah, which obviously we can do, but we'd be uh, discovering all sorts of new kinds of music through the portal of people who love it. So someone who listens to something so out of my sphere uh, that I could go and, you know, discover, you know, find a blog that covers great Eastern European hip hop, or it doesn't even need to be as far afield as that, but, or even just like a met, someone who's writing about metal songs from where they're at with metal and help me break into a genre that I uh, can have a hard time with. And instead it's just like people started that project and then everyone kind of, I think as a result of class and whatever else, like, Okay, more and more indie rock blogs, and then more and more indie rock blogs doing nothing but promoting, glibly promoting, talking about there is a new release. You know, less and less writing uh, and more and more self-expression and more and more, like, statement of existence of things. And now it's at the point where so many of those have shut down. And, you know, I'm, I'm so frustrated. Even, I mean, even something like if you could say that indie rock is now, you know, really well covered by the <laughs> blogging community someone will, uh, you know, someone will release a Beck, what was it, Beck covered David Bowie's Sound and Vision, you know, one of the great all-time greatest songs of all time. Beck covered it for a car company. Great. Everyone was talking, Beck covered it for a car company, like, check it out, check it out. Like, I saw a hundred links to this thing, which is exactly what the car company would have wanted. Mm-hmm. Not one person told me if it was any good. You know, not one person told me how, to, how they heard it, what they thought of it. And it was like, I have to... <laughs> You've all listened to it how many times, and I still have to spend three minutes with it to decide if I don't know. It was like a so disappointing. You feel like the the articulation of the thing, as opposed to the way the thing makes us feel, has become more prominent. Yeah, yeah, and it's and I mean it became a race for people to be the first to mention something or the first to break news of some kind, um, which is just kind of an attention driven thing and it's part of how the internet works is like if if you get a reputation for breaking stuff first then 
you can draw an audience that way, but it it's really a kind of really shallow, shallow form of of discussion. And I think that for a lot of us, you know, I mean, Sean still added and said the gramophone is still going and still wonderful. But, you know, I stopped music blogging because it felt like the readership culture just wasn't there for it. That it true. was for a while and then that fell away. And, at the, and, and what it fell away because of was basically social media, I think. I think that Facebook and Twitter really eroded. You know, and it was partly blogs themselves that had, you know, not nurtured the culture very well. But then, then social media became a different kind of distraction. Mm-hmm. And blog reading now seems a little bit of a quaint thing. And it's unfortunate because it was like, it was kind of a wonderful like Thomas Paine kind of interlude in, in the media, right? Where suddenly there were a thousand, a million pamphleteers like putting out their own series of broadsides. And, it, you know, there's something really wonderful and romantic about it. And it's too bad that it turned out to be so fragile, but it, it did. And so we have to think about what next could be a successful model to have those kinds of discussions. Uh, I will say that one thing that occurred to me when I was on my way here today is that ironically, I think that podcasts have had this, uh, have given birth to this great renaissance in terms of talking about ideas, mm-hmm. you know, like a, a, a cultural artifact where we talk about ideas, you know, long form magazine articles are on the wane, but more and more people are like putting an hour, half hour or an hour's worth of conversations about ideas in their heads. Um, and I really wish that we were, it makes me long for, you know, the, the DJ, let me, the old school radio DJ, we were like, let me play a song and then I can talk to you about that song. Of course, with musical podcasts, the issue is rights, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Yeah. so it's like the podcasts have given this great opportunity on the one hand for the rebirth of a certain kind of intellectual discourse, or it doesn't even have to be that highfalutin. Uh, but unfortunately, like copyright issues have prevented it from also letting um, a certain kind of talking about art also benefit or music in particular benefit from the form. Yeah. And it's true. It's like, you know, the way that there was resistance to radio and to television and there's, there needs to be kind of a some kind of decision made about what kind of fair use exists in podcasting where you can like let your listeners hear what you're talking about. And that and that would create a possibility to sort of sculpt that form a little bit mm-hmm. in yeah. in the music criticism side of it. You know, there are people who do great things production wise on others. You know, whether talking about design or science or these kinds of things, but we haven't quite seen that so much in, with music. Yeah, it's a well, it's getting kind of meta. We're on a music podcast, I guess, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it can be difficult um, to. Uh, to really represent the culture as well as we'd like. Uh, but the, the, you know, it's interesting to me that both of you, it's arguable because I think that such, what I'm about to say, I don't know if it still exists because I think at one point, and Carl, you, I think you covered this a lot in your book, there used to be kind of an, an orthodoxy about... Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Uh, music um, in terms of taste and, and, and what it was okay to like and what it wasn't okay to like. You kind of were on teams. And, and Sean, you were referring to... Um, I think you said, uh, I can't remember what you said, Middle Eastern hip hop? Is that what it was? I think Eastern European. Eastern European, rather, sorry. (laughs) Well, the idea that I feel like that orthodoxy has melted away. I remember coming up in high school and and, and feeling like some people that I thought were really with it were kind of like, oh, I can't listen to Tribe Called Quest or whatever. Like, that's that's hip hop music, and I don't like hip hop music. And all of that seemed to melt away. And, And then within that, I think figures like you two, um, I guess I would count myself among them, kind of really embraced and supported outsider art, for lack of a better term. Um, And so as we've done that, I feel like the measures of success are more confusing. Like um, when I hear of people, like you you say, Carl, that you stopped your blog uh, because you didn't feel like people were engaging with it, I I suppose, on on a level that, that... and and this is what I'm hearing from other folks, too. And to be honest, when I look at stats, I try now to just not look at stats because I'm like, why would I? It seems like such an ex- this this thing we're doing is coming from somewhere inside of us and it's coming from a place of passion. And all these external considerations are not necessarily that healthy. I mean, they can be encouraging, but they can also be incredibly devastating. So I suppose my question is, for people like yourselves who are engaged in this um, support of work that is less uh, that is underrepresented, can you continue to do this in a way uh, that is fulfilling to you, and and but also irrespective of I guess the material goals that you would one would have to survive and sustain one's life? Like, is it is is it not enough just to care and do the thing? Or do you need that external uh, feedback and, and the impact that people listening, uh, you know, provide? Uh, I think, so two things, two, I'll try to be quick, two quick things come to <laughs> mind. Both, and they're uh, almost conflicting answers. One is uh, that, um, one is that the answer to your question is, no, this cannot continue. Uh, and that's kind of the political, the political part of me. Uh, I believe very, because I believe so strongly in the importance of this stuff, um, I also believe that we have a responsibility to try to figure out a way for it to work. And that means, you know, uh, that means that things have to go away if they're not supported. People have to start paying for music again. People have to be putting money into things more more, I think, even more relevantly, people have to be willing to give taxes that go to sustaining cultural institutions that are all, all of these things. And, and if all these cultural institutions continue to, like, um, wheeze, you know, continue to go through it, wheezing and, like, basically on volunteer time, everyone's just going to burn out and all it'll be, you'll rely on the young people coming up, burning out, 
new young people coming up, burning out, and then you're missing on a huge amount of the discourse that comes from people who have been, been in the in the show for more than 10 years. Right. Um, so I think you have a certain responsibility to say, yes, this will go away if, uh, as society, we don't find a better way to do things. Yeah, and before you get up to the counterpoint, like, it's not, that's not a hypothetical. Like, that's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, the number of people I know who used to be music writers who aren't anymore is a long list. You know, people have gone back to academia or just moved into whole other fields because it's just not, it's just not possible to make a living doing this. And, you know, that, like, I'm at the moment managing that balancing act, but it's easy to imagine how that could collapse in a second. Yeah, for me and, too. You know, and so... And so it, it it really is very discouraging on that level. Yeah, no, I'm I'm going through it too. I mean, <laughs> uh, to you know, I it's very frustrating to know that that this. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what to do about it. And this is now becoming a weird uh, psychological session. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a peer but group. Sean, the second point that he was going to make. Yeah, that. sorry, Sean. Go ahead. My response, I think, is an answer to that psychological. Uh, uh, question and it's something that Carl and I talked about a little bit the last time we got together. The other side of this is that I think it is crucial and important, and these kind of conversations and experiencing art and beauty and solitude and thinking about art and beauty and solitude, which sounds so stupid, but anyway, uh, I mean, I think that's what life is for. And like, if you have a if you have a gift or a capacity or a passion for, you know, bringing this out and engaging in these conversations in public, like you do, Vish, and like we do in our professional lives, at least, I think you've got to keep doing it. That's what, that's what the point of life, like, I mean, family and relationships aside, it's like, that's what this is about. And so if we don't keep doing it, what, what the hell are we, what the hell are we paying the rent for? (laughs) Not to continue those conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't know what I would do. You know, it's one, of the, one, of, one of the reasons that I don't think I'm quitting anytime soon is, you know, unlike a lot of these people who've made healthy choices to move on, I'm like, I'm like I've just damaged myself enough that this is the only thing I can do. So, yeah. so I have to keep going and hope that, you know, some lucky breaks happen along the way. Yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in the same boat. Um, Carl, um, I'm curious why this book is, uh, has been reissued at this point in time. Can you... Because it's a it's a yeah. marvelous edition of the book. Uh, I'm, I'm holding it here as if we were on television, which it <laughs> kind of feels like we are. But um, I, did, I neglected to mention this. The the book is uh, uh, features new essays by uh, some great people: James Franco, Daphne Brooks, uh, uh, Nick Hornby, Chris Novoselic, Owen Pallett. All in that's just some of them. All in response to your original book, and I can see um, I can see why that uh, would be compelling enough to to bring it back on the shelves, but can you elaborate upon that? What is there something about this time, seven years later that you thought uh, uh, a, a revised version of this book might, uh, might serve people, I suppose? Yeah, the timing, I mean, the timing isn't too specific. Um, probably the best explanation of the timing is that we sort of started thinking about it at the fifth anniversary of the book. And then it just took longer than we expected for it to all come together. But, um, I think that the the motivation is that the book kind of took on a life of its own in some ways out there in the way that you hope books do, Um, and particularly um, being adopted into college courses and a lot of sort of academic uses that way, 
um, because it's it works well for teachers as an accessible kind of way into a bunch of questions in sort of the philosophy of aesthetics and and the history of sort of debates around taste and all of that kind of thing. So so people have found it useful that way. Um, and it's also and it's sort of generated its own um, slow murmur of discussion <laughs> over the years. And so you know I knew that I had you know friends and colleagues and and other people I didn't know who in one way or another had indicated that they'd found it useful or influential and and but I'm I'm just hearing those conversations right <laughs> right and it, and I thought that it would be lovely for readers of the book to be able to get in on that process and and also the book had sort of achieved an identity of its own in a way that felt like it it didn't entirely sit comfortably and quietly within the realm of the 33 and a third series anymore, even though that was a wonderful context to introduce it in. So in all those ways, it felt like it was, it was nice to give it a kind of more permanent form um, as a book outside the series and also to like open it up and say to readers, this is sort of a, a, a chorus of the responses that people have had and the thoughts that people have had and the way that they have been either using or rebutting or all of the things that they've done with the ideas in this book. And, and, you know, by sharing a dozen or so of those things with readers, I hoped it kind of would prompt readers to think in, in their turn, what they would talk about if they were called on to, to apply it to their own lives and their own thinking. And I really enjoy that kind of dialogic form that the book's taken on now rather than just being a monologue from me. You yeah, know? yeah, totally, totally. Sean, if I might uh, presumptuously put you on the spot, can you speak to the impact that uh, Carl's book, presuming you've read it, <laughs> uh, which I believe you have, um, can you discuss uh, the impact that Carl's book had on you as, as a music fan and as a music writer? Because Carl and I have had discussions about the book over the years, uh, Carl, you say you've heard from people uh, about it. I've heard from people about it. Uh, people know I'm a fan of it as well, and they want to talk to me about <laughs> your book. And uh, it's always fascinating. But, but Sean, do you uh, do you have any any particular thoughts on the book? I think it worked on me. Uh, I think it's one of my favorite books, works of nonfiction ever written. Uh, but I think that it worked on me in two different ways. And one was... Um, I'm a little bit younger than Carl. And when we first met, and in fact, around when the book, you know, if I think back seven years, I was a pretty new, it's pretty new to any kind of professional music criticism. And in fact, I was pretty new to a whole bunch of kinds of music. You know, I had not, I was, I grew up listening to mostly to classical music and to folk music. Mm. And then when I hit my sort of late teens, rebellious phase all that meant is i started listening to bell and sebastian and nick drake it wasn't like i didn't really like i didn't have i, I ignored all of hardcore I, I now have all these friends who i grew up in ottawa all these friends who were part of the lovely gentle kindly hardcore scene there and i feel like at all ages hardcore and i'm like i really missed out on that nice scene i wasn't into into rap music uh, you know i had nothing and so it was in my late very late teens and early 20s that i suddenly started cultivating this stuff and a bunch of writers helped me kind of learn to appreciate this music. And then Carl's book hit kind of just as I left that phase of like discovery and was kind of like in my own skin as an adult with 
the beginnings of a more sophisticated taste. And it helped me intellectually kind of understand what process I had gone through and what it said about me before. Hmm. And also that I was in this newly cocky place of like, well, now, like, now I have wonderful taste, you know, because <laughs> I like Belle and Sebastian and A Tribe Called Quest, you know, like, <laughs> way to really get out there, buddy. Um, and I think it helped me sort of uh, be critical of myself <laughs> or be, you know, but, but I think that's a, uh, it gives me, it gave me that intellectual humility that I think is very important when, especially for critics, because they get so stuck up their own uh, petards, wasting <laughs> their, I don't know what a petard is. Wasted on their own asses. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so there was that. And then there was also the fact that he wrote uh, a book, uh, a nonfiction uh, kind of book about the philosophy of taste and about the history of a particular musical artist and musical genre that was still absolutely suffused with heart and soul and personal writing. And, uh, and uh, is it, and is it an exemplar of that? Like it does it so beautifully. And so as a, someone who now may, as a, my trade is so often like writing nonfiction, though not as in as much of a long form as I would like, it's definitely like has always remained this kind of beacon of like the way that you can put some of you in a book about something that isn't you. Yeah, when I think of you, Sean, I do think of you to be a, a very astute but romantic writer. I, yeah. I, I feel like you find, you get at the heart of songs. If something touches you, you're able to eloquently articulate how and why. And I actually see that as having great kinship with what Carl ha has done with his book. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, Sean, for yourself, I'm curious about uh, about us conductors, which I must confess, uh, well, it's not a confession. I've been reading it uh, steadily, but I read it, I, I finished it today, uh -huh. and all that means is that it's uh, swimming around in my head, uh, mm -hmm. maybe more than if I had read it yesterday. Uh, and it's a very touching story, and um, it's a remarkable book. And I, I want to, I, I haven't, I guess I may have sent you a congratulatory text, but at the risk of blowing, uh, buttering you up. It's, it's a really wonderful book. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. Now, I'm curious about you. What did building this story and these lives up leave you with in the end? Because uh, you, you have a, you're building it upon a shaky foundation of truth. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you've elaborated upon the rest. Uh, how, how did you sort of feel emotionally after leaving this book behind? Um, ah, well, I mean, leave after leaving, it's hard to say that you've, that I've left. Um, there's the kind of the heart, the, there's the, the, the more, uh, brutal answer to that question, which is you kind of like finish a manuscript, hate it, work <laughs> on it some more, start liking it a bit more. So there's like that kind of answer, which is the answer to which right now I'm in a place of being like. Um, satisfied with what I've done, resenting it doesn't do some of the things I want it to do, and also kind of uh, at peace with the idea that I don't think everyone is going to get what necessarily all of what I was trying to communicate with it. So is that that's where it leaves me. Do you, and then do it, you feel do you feel like your your protagonist, the expert that you've been meddled with in some way? Uh. It's strange. I've spent the last um, like three and a half years or four years or five years, whatever, writing this book, 
which is about somebody. Can we swear on here? Or oh show? yeah, you can swear your your ass okay. off. <laughs> Get ready for this one. Um, writing a story about someone who has a pretty fucked up um, love life and like a pretty fucked up vision of the way that he imagines grapples with his own idea. His own ideas of romantic love are this weirdly, and I think true. Like I was trying to gesture to something true that happens is really fucked up reciprocal, unreciprocated love, the way that we imagine and invent a certain kind of love in our head. It deals a lot with those kinds of issues. Um, and so I've been thinking a lot about kind of true love, false love, the, how much true love is true, who is it true to, those kind of weird questions. While at almost the same time, I met the woman that I've now married mm. uh, last fall and uh, and I mean, we, we fell in love and then we had those conversations about why should, who, who gets married, who cares, you know, like, <laughs> which a lot of people nowadays will have. What's the point of, you know, what is the role of marriage? Anyway, so a lot of questions about love and true love and soulmate and like all this kind of stuff. And I will say that this damn Russian inventor with his fucked up love affair has like at times... Uh, being something that I really feel has have felt as a presence in my heart as I try to work through these ideas myself. And, you know, that you're, it's like having this skeptical, having learned this skeptical this lesson about the falseness of these things uh, through this character and having him kind of in the room with you while you experience something, uh, try to experience something honestly yourself. Yeah, it, well, that's it's, it's. I appreciate that answer. I mean, I I feel like the narrative device of actually having the book presented as a letter, as an address to someone. Um, as you say, I, I'm, I'm, it's always I'm always sort of uh, I always try to tie my hands a bit talking about a work of fiction. I don't want to give anything away, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I want to be careful here. But this whole unrequited love uh, idea. Um, but having uh, a con- this connection with this with the woman that he, he he most loves, and it's all due to his invention. Like the, basically, they're connected by an invention of his, the theremin. And I don't know. I it, it's just uh, it, it does when I read it. I, I hear your voice in it, uh, having read your work for years and being familiar with it. And it's interesting that you say that it may have indeed been drawn from your own experiences with love. Well, no, I actually, like, I wouldn't have worded it that way because I definitely don't think, I have not had, like, an experience of unrequited love that is, like, this book isn't colored. This isn't, this is in no way, like, a, a sublimated version of a past relationship. I could, okay. or even several past relationships. Um, it's really, an, it's one of those things where I think it has more to do with what I have observed than experienced in terms of those things and trying to, like, unpack some things that I've observed. Um, but it's still like sh- when you spend a, like it's, you, sp- you spend years trying to think about the way that you can be fooled by love or fool yourself. And then you're in the, while you're falling in love, it's like, yeah, that's really what I'm, that's sc- uh, actually like scary. Yeah. Terrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I don't want to heavy, I don't want to do draw too heavy a hand in drawing another parallel, but it seems to me that in both of your cases, uh, in both books, your protagonists are kind of ha- hapless geniuses. <laughs> it's autobiographical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Celine Dion, in a weird way, like no one would would say this, but I think she has accomplished a lot. 
Uh, and do- doesn't get a lot of respect uh, for That's it. That's interesting. Wow. <laughs> I've not thought about these characters as similar characters, but you, yeah, you have a point. <laughs> it's it's kind of weird. Like the well, you know, it's funny when I hear tandem book launch. I was like, that seems odd. And then I, after finishing Sean's book, I'm like, weird again. Heavy hand. I've got you both on the line here, <laughs> trying to draw parallels. But I actually think it's true. Uh, and and you know, Lev is such a this character is is so brilliant, but he can't he can't figure out life. He can figure out everything but life in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, it's totally. Yeah, I think that there's something there. You know, it's maybe sort of a an archetypal story in some ways about about creativity. That you know that that the the things that fuel creativity and what and that kind of single minded pursuit of of invention of some kind. You know, the invention of a of a pop career or the invention of an instrument. All of these kinds of things. You know, the science that's involved in all of that. There's there's kind of a, a underlying truth that shows up in a lot of these kinds of stories that that for all of the impressiveness of that it doesn't solve like it doesn't explain life and like it's actually a, easily a way to distract yourself from life and hopefully through these stories we're finding ways to go through that and come back around and to get some kind of insight out of them but it but it is kind of a basic thing about these kinds of cultural obsessions is that. You know, they're kind of what you do while you're messing everything else up, <laughs> you know. And so, so yeah, and I think I think there is that there, and and some kind of question of like whether these are necessary sacrifices to have that kind of life, right? You know, whether it produces that, right? Um, Carl, I know that you provided a, a a blurb, I suppose, for Sean's book. Do you have anything further you'd like to say about uh, about it to entice people maybe to read it, or <laughs> or, or just uh, offer uh, some insight about it? Um, what can I say? I mean, I think that you know you've done a pretty good job of describing um, what what its appeals are. You know, the, the thing that's great for me is you know I, it really does have this voice of Sean's that I'm very familiar of. Um, from years of reading his writing, this very like textured and beautifully aware of the weights of words and the and the balances of sentences and the ways that the ways that those things play off of each other and can kind of create their own kind of music, and that combined with this kind of fascinating like almost kind of like slapstick kind of yeah. historical <laughs> story, you know, it's like a really nutty narrative of like exactly that wonderful sort of like pre-modernity kind of moment as well like just bef- just as the world that we know was kind of coming into view this story takes place and it's kind of the heroes of it are people who were kind of instrumental in in making the world that we know come into view mm-hmm. and so it's ex- it's got that exciting kind of buzz of that kind of turning point of history and and the world shifting a little bit but like done with this delicacy. So you kind of get that both of those things at the same time, you get this kind of lyrical voice that's, that's hovering above the story and this kind of like actually very jaunty and, and, um, and, and surprising story going on at the same time. And that's, that's, you know, an unusual achievement. You know, I think often in Canadian literature, particularly it's, there's kind of a sense that you get one or the other. And I really enjoy the way that Sean's brought those 
voices and those dynamics together in in one story. Yeah, and there's a sinister undercurrent to it as well. Obviously, uh, uh, you know, dealing with with Stalin's Russia and and also yeah, again, I was just thinking for some reason as you were speaking, I was like, you know, Sean's book's about spying, like kind of like the way Carl was spying on Celine Dion when he went to that concert. <laughs> You are possibly becoming pathological. <laughs> Sorry, I, I can't help it. I want to ask you about the uh, launch uh, party structure itself. It's a very intriguing uh, event, and I, I, I'm hoping that uh, if we talk a little bit about it, we can uh, give people some insight as to what it's going to be like. Okay. <laughs> it's a it's an incredible evening we have planned. <laughs> it's an incredible thing. Let's see. We can list off some of the participants. We have... Carl Wilson <laughs> and Shawn Michaels will both be, uh, I think, doing some kind of short reading from their respective tomes. And then you're reading and speaking, I suppose, like you're having a conversation. Yeah, and then we're going to talk to each other similarly to the way that we have now. <laughs> uh, but hopefully we'll come up with some other twists and turns. Uh-huh. Um, and then... Well, I mean, the sequence may change. We have um, uh, Toronto has its extraordinary rap battles league, which is a comedy rap battle league. So two of its stars, my friend Dan Byrne of Said the Gramophone, will be uh, battling rap style as uh, a thereminist versus Roger Bainbridge as a Celine Dion fan, I believe. We'll be having a adversarial squaring off. So we'll decide which of these books is more important via rap. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Uh, we have a musical set by, uh, by Snowblink, um, who will be performing, I think, uh, a few songs uh, accompanied by the thereminist, well, the musician and sometimes thereminist, Jeff Bird. Uh, from Guelph. From Guelph. From Guelph and the Cowboy Junkies, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then we also have DJ Sandro Perry, We'll be making uh, the walls shake, um, <laughs> and Lisa Ledoucer is going to be our host. Nice. No, it's it's a great. It's, it seems like a really great event. I, I'm excited for people to check it out. And uh, before we uh, we leave you, is there anything you can tell us about what's next? I know you alluded earlier to uh, almost disparagingly to uh, people that only want to make news, but. <laughs> What could be hotter than a, a hot gossip about Carl Wilson and Shawn Michaels' future <laughs> literary or what what have you? What any other endeavors? No, I'm curious. You know, I'm fans of both of your work. Or you, do you have upcoming projects that uh, we we can know anything about at this point? In my case, there are projects that are in the incubator, and you can't know about them because hmm. um, they're not really at that stage yet. Um, but I, you know, I've been really busy um, writing regular most weeks for Slate. Um, about music and also I've been writing a column called The News and Art in Hazlitt online and so those kinds of those things have kept me going and kept kind of slowed down the progress of bigger projects hmm. while I kind of get because you know, I've, I've been freelance full time for the past six months or so for the first time in years so I've been kind of make, trying to get that train yeah. on the tracks before I launch a lot of other things right okay um, and I'm I'm doing some traveling for this book, uh, and then kind of the summer is kind of thinking about going around uh, Canada and the states with some of that. And so it's what looms largest on the horizon is that I'm looking for a story to tell in another book. Uh, I'm in the phase of I don't know. I'm still a little bit at the fishing mach- fishing machine. Uh, for some reason, right? I- the, fi- the the old fishing machine. <laughs> 
<laughs> I don't, for some reason, the image that came to mind isn't actual fishing, but is like a carnival game of fishing, <laughs> where like an egg with a prize in it. Anyway, if any, if any listeners out there have heard an extraordinary tale that may or may not be true, uh, I feel like sending it winging my way. I'm certainly curious for uh, or I come tales. to the launch and you can buttonhole Sean. Oh, there and, and be I've got have I got an all for you. Yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> yeah. I'll tell your story, Vish. All right, well that's the first time anyone I've asked lots of people <laughs> what's next. It's the first Vish, time yeah. what's that? <laughs> I think I think that it's yeah, I think it's it's shaping up that Sean's next novel is gonna be all about you. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. That'll be nice. It's the first time I've asked someone what's next and they've said, I don't know, can someone tell me what to do? No one's ever done that. <laughs> It's nice. It's really, it's very refreshing. Uh, I want to let folks know Carl Wilson's insightful book, Let's Talk About Love, Why Some People Have Such Bad Taste, is out now via Bloomsbury. Sean Michael's stunning new novel, Us Conductors, is available now via Random House. And uh, as we discussed, they celebrate these books with a tandem book launch at Toronto's Monarch Tavern, located at 12 Clinton Street. It's at 7.30 p.m. on Tuesday, April 8th. And as they mentioned, featuring Snow Blink, Rap Battles, uh, Sandro Perry, Jeff Bird, Lisa Ladasur. It's going to be great. Gentlemen, I, I congratulate you both on these books, uh, both of which have profounded me, effect, uh, rather affected me profoundly. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Profounded <laughs> me effectively. Profounded, profounded me effectively. That's got to go in the book about me. I think that's the title, actually, somehow. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at cfru.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.